and take your Bible and open to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18 is our passage of study this morning, and we hope to dive in and dive deep to learn and hear from God, to be changed, for Him to be glorified in our life. Genesis 18, and we'll read the chapter. Uh, This, what you're about to hear and what you're about to read is the only inspired thing that you'll hear for the rest of our time together, unless we refer to other verses, other parts of Scripture. So this is an important part, and we make sure to take the time to read uh, this because this is God's Word. Genesis 18, beginning verse 1, and the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, 
I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again, he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. And then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. And then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. And God, what a great God you are to hear the pleas of your people, Lord, to respond. God, we praise you. We thank you. And Lord, we pray that you would work in our hearts and minds through your word and that you would be glorified in that. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are now continuing to study this life of faith in the Lord, the living God through this man, Abraham. And, and hopefully what we've been going through has been encouraging for you. Hopefully it's been challenging and edifying truth because we've looked at in chapter 13 how to handle conflict, how to work through trouble. Uh, we've seen how inescapable faith should be in our life from big world events to little trials, temptations that come in chapter 14. We saw faith at work both in communion with God and in covenant with God in chapter 15. But then we've seen that desires can derail our faith, that can, that can get us off track, and, and we can be led away by our own desires for what we think is most important. So temporarily, we can derail our faith. We saw that in chapter 16, but how encouraging it is that our Savior never gives up on us. He comes to us, He finds us, and He leads our faith back to Him as we confess, we repent, Last week, we saw the evidence of growing faith, increasingly believing God's promises and receiving His commands, right? Giving up our own works, but increasing in obedience to this great God. So each part of Abraham's life has taught us a little bit more about faith and what it looks like in a life. But, but the constant reality, what's never changed, is not Abraham, it's not his faith, but the object of his faith, the God in whom his faith is placed. That's the most important lesson because we don't live by faith in faith itself. We live by faith in our great God, in our Lord Jesus Christ. And our faith is only ever rightly placed in him, not ourselves, not in one another, not even in our own ability to believe. Faith is not rightly placed in any of those. It's a really sneaky attack that comes on us. And it really usually happens when we've hit a high point. You know, we've, we've done something good or we've made it through a temptation and we're at the top and we think, man, this is good. I'm, I'm doing all right. My faith is strong. And then that's when that, that derailing happens where our faith has been placed in faith or in ourselves. So we've got to be careful and watchful because even though it's subtle like that, it actually becomes a very highly successful way of removing our faith from God into something or someone else. And part of the symptoms for our faith being moved from God to something else uh, is what people hear from us, 
what they see in us as they watch us, as they listen to what we say. Our life changes. Depending on who our God is, our life will change based on that. Where your faith is is where your heart is. And where your heart is is where your thoughts are. And where your thoughts are is where your actions and words come from. And so when you see a change in habits, I don't really know that I have to go to Koinonia group. I don't really know that I have to go to church. I don't have to read the Word of God every day, do I? And we start to see a falling away and a changing of habits, a change of desires, a change in our words and actions. Those are symptoms that show us that, that maybe our faith isn't still placed in the Lord. It's maybe faith, faith that's placed in something else, uh, in faith itself, in ourselves, or something else. So, When you see those changes, those are symptoms, so don't work on the symptoms necessarily. Don't try to just throw some Tylenol at it and think that it's better. Um, try Try to make yourself do better. Use the symptoms that reveal where your faith is to start with your heart and examine that and then work outward. That's the question for us today. When people listen to you speak, when they see you in your life, when they see you living in your neighborhood and at work, what does your life tell other people about your God? Because we're going to confess, we're going to profess the name of Jesus. We're going to say, yes, I'm a Christian. But when they see you living as a Christian, what are they learning about your God? What are they learning about Jesus in your life, your speech, your actions? Now, as we seek to answer those questions, there are practical ways that we should know that they, what, what to look for and how, those, how to answer those questions. There are specific traits that will be obvious when our faith is rightly placed in God and not in ourselves or in other people. There are four in this chapter. And there are many more, but this is what we're going to begin with because this is the lesson we have from God's Word today in this chapter 18 of Genesis. Four traits of God's people of faith. So let's look at the first one in verses 1 through 8. Number one, God's people of faith are hospitable. Hospitable. Or or you could say they're given to hospitality. So Abraham is sitting in the heat of the day and he's at his tent, is in the shade underneath the tree. And behold, this is the expressive Hebrew language. Boom. Behold, there are men standing in front of him. And he said, whoa, where do these guys come from? So he says, my goodness, we've got people here. So, so he jumps up and he begins to be hospitable toward them. Uh, when Megan and I first got married, we lived on base, and there was a couple who made it a very uh, regular habit to show up at the door with no notice, no warning, no phone call, and they would want to stand and they would want to talk for an hour or more. And it was a great thing that they wanted to, to do that, but, but as we started to catch on that this was going to happen at even the most inopportune times, we began to get a little less and less hospitable to that couple. Abraham didn't respond that way. He responded to these men who just showed up with no warning, no notice, with hospitality. And he didn't just say, I will be hospitable. He did it, right? He, he, he did it. They said, okay, do what you said you're going to do. Now, this play, takes place in a desert land. And everybody needs basic survival in the desert. So even if you're an enemy, what's expected in this culture is that if you're hungry, you're you're thirsty, you've been out in this wilderness, and you come to an enemy's tent, the enemy will still take you in, be hospitable to you, feed you, protect you. And the agreement was, 
let's not be enemies for this time. Let's just take care of this person. People are going to die out there in the wilderness. People shouldn't die of that. People can die if I kill them because they're my enemy. <laughs> that's okay when we're fighting over something. That, that's the culture, right? But, but nobody should be dying out there of thirst and hunger, so we take care of people. This is a, a hospitality culture. There's, there's no hotels. There's no motels. There's no convenience stores. So when you come across a tent, they are expected to feed you. And, and people have gotten into that, that mindset so much that people are even known to announce when a meal is ready. Hey, neighbors, come on over. We've got some food here. <laughs> Make yourselves at home. They've, they've been known to go out and invite people into their homes to feed them. People saw guests as a gift given to them by God to be cared for. That's how they saw guests. So Abraham, in verse 2, says he ran to meet them. He brings water to them to wash their feet. I'll feed you, and you can be refreshed. Verse 6 says he quickly went to the tent. He tells Sarah, please move quickly. He runs to the herd. I mean, he's rushing all over for the sake of being hospitable. But then he goes above and beyond, not just in the speed, but in the provisions themselves. He brings water, and that would be understood. And he says, I'll bring a morsel of bread. But what he brings is so much more than just a, a little morsel of bread. He says to Sarah, take three sayas of fine flour and make cakes. Now, we're talking, depending on the size of the loaves, between 12 and 20 loaves of bread for three men who have just come out of the middle of the desert. He has no idea where they've come from. So, just an overflowing abundance of bread, and, and these, are, these are fine flour, bread cakes of, of, of bread. Water to drink would have been fine, but Abraham brings curds and milk. Verse 7 says he killed the prized calf, tender and good. So when, when a basic amount would have been fine, Abraham goes above and beyond. He brings so much more. Now, people debate whether he knew this was the Lord himself at this time when he starts with the hospitality. But he doesn't seem like he knows who it is at the beginning. He catches on later on. But in all of this rushing around and all this going above and beyond, his mind is on being hospitable. He did more than was expected because he's living differently as a person of faith. Now, this might not seem like a big deal in our culture. Things are different now. We do have the hotels, the motels, the convenience stores, and, and all of that. But what shouldn't be different is God's people being hospitable, caring for people in their homes, and in our, in our worship service, in our collective church building here, wherever we are, being hospitable. Part of our life, in fact, Romans 12 says, as living sacrifices to God, in Romans 12, 1 through 13, is contributing to the needs of the saints and seeking to show hospitality. We're to be looking for, like earnestly looking for, like searching out, how can I be hospitable? How can I bring people to my home? How can I care for them? It, it, an example of an explicit command for us in he, is in Hebrews 13, where he says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, because thereby some have entertained angels unawares. And he may have been referring to Abraham right here, because chapter 19 in Genesis is going to tell us that two of these three, two of these are angels. One of them is a manifestation of God himself. First uh, Peter 4 9 says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. That's pretty clear, right? So, so we must be hospitable. Christians are called to be and commanded to be hospitable to people by God in His Word. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 25 that at the time of the judgment, you're going to be able to tell who belonged to Jesus and who did not in life based on 
hospitality. Those who gave no food, gave no drink, gave no welcome, no clothes, didn't visit the people in prison to the least people, he says, they will be the ones who obviously did not belong to me and they will be sent to hell. So we need to be following Abraham's lead of living out our faith in hospitality for brothers and sisters and for anybody that comes along. It's so important because it's such a practical part of living holiness and love. It's how our love is known for one another. It's how our love is known for others. It's how our love for our God is understood when it's made real in our life. Now, we, we know, we understand that we can't all afford to give veal and curds and the finest bread to all of our visitors. In fact, we had a family over this past week, and we were going to have hamburgers and hot dogs, and, uh, and we did. We made the hamburgers and hot dogs, and we thought, well, we'll just make them ahead, and we'll keep them warm so that when they get there, we can just eat right away. And what ended up happening was somehow we defied the laws of physics with these burgers and these dogs, because not only did they dry out as we waited, <laughs> they became more dense than they were before. Like somehow we added mass, which is impossible to do. It was amazing. These things... We, just, we were embarrassed, and they were just so terrible. But our guests were very gracious to us. Um, so we're not always going to get it right. We're not always going to have veal and the finest cakes and breads and curds and honey and milk and all of the things that Abraham was able to do. But we do our best, right? Whatever we have that we can offer, we, we do our best with that. Now, one other point, we call this a theophany where God appears in human form. And what we need to understand is that no effort is made here at all to describe what God looked like as a human being or the two angels who were with him. The appearance wasn't important, right? The, the appearance wasn't the important part. But as Abraham obeyed God rather than just the customs around him, he's going to be the, the recipient of further blessings from God because of it. And what he did not do was what we so often do and give half-hearted service to God, participation, fellowship. All right, God, I'm here at church. I've done my part. Now you do yours, right? I'm not really going to listen or pay attention. I'm not really going to actively engage and participate in worship. I'm not going to talk to any of these weird people around here. <laughs> I'm going to come here. I'm going to sit here. And I'm going to wait for you to do something, and then I'm going to leave as soon as it's over. And when I get home, I'm going to wonder, now, God, why didn't that affect me or have any impact on my life at all? That's what we so often do. We fall into those habits, but Abraham didn't fall into that here. He, he, he rushes into service, and he gives himself fully into serving, and that's what God calls us to be and to do. He calls us to hospitality, whether we, whether we feel like we're gifted that way or not. Whether we're at home or at church, wherever we are, that's the first trait of God's people of faith. So we can look for that in our life. And if it's not there, it, it's, it's good to start working on that trait of faith in the life of a believer. There's a second one here in verses 9 through 15. And number two, God's people of faith believe in His power. They believe in His power. Now, th this may seem not as practical as the first one, but stick with us and, and we'll see how this becomes very practical. As these three men eat, they don't apparently waste any time whatsoever on small talk. They say to Abraham, where's your wife? Now, it wasn't customary for women to eat with men at the time, so she wasn't expected to be there. But these visitors have a special kind of authority 
because of who they are, who they represent. Because this is a manifestation of God in human form, he knows exactly where Sarah is. She's in the tent. She's right there just next to them. They're they're under the tree, which is right next to the tent, which is where she is. And tents, as you may be well aware, if you've ever gone camping, tents are not soundproof, are they? (laughs) God knows she's listening at the tent, and he knows her name. They don't say, where's your wife? Um, No, where's Sarah? Where's your wife? God already knows she's listening. And, and she may have been listening before, but as soon as you hear your name, don't you start listening even more? <laughs> don't you, your ears perk up, right? So she's just heard her name. Abraham says she's in the tent. So God repeats what he told Abraham already back in chapter 17. A year from now, she's going to have a baby. Now, in case we don't remember, Moses, who wrote this, the narrator of this event, reminds us that Abraham and Sarah are not newlyweds, <laughs> Right? In fact, Sarah is too old, having gone through the change that means that she can't have children anymore. We call that menopause, right? She's gone through this change. Uh, Not only that, but she was barren before, so there's like no chance at all that she's going to have children. And she says, I'm worn out. I'm too old. And my Lord is too old. She's talking about her husband, Abraham. You remember when we studied 1 Peter 3, that Sarah was held up as an example of faith and a faithful wife who called her husband her Lord, like um, the the one that she submits to voluntarily, not because he forces her to, but but that's what 1 Peter 3 was talking about. My Lord is old. Um, But she asks, you know, at this point in life, shall I have pleasure? And the word there really does refer to sexual pleasure. She says, how on earth am I going to have children? How can I even enjoy trying to have children? That's what she's asking. Now, we talked about it before. If somebody else told you this, at, she's 90 years old, 89 to 90 years old, um, you're probably going to have a little bit of trouble believing this. But again, like we said last time, this isn't just anybody telling her this or saying this out loud, this is the Lord, the Almighty God. Is anything too hard for the Lord? The same lesson that Abraham had to learn, Sarah now has to learn. Now, God had already told this to Abraham, the exact same information in chapter 17. So either Abraham hasn't bothered to tell Sarah which, you know, if you think about it, that's kind of a problem because she would be a little bit involved in something like that, having children, right? She, he either hasn't bothered to tell Sarah or she's still struggling believing this promise from God. But in either case, she doubts God's ability to follow through. But God knows Sarah's thoughts. And even though she laughs to herself, God hears. God sees. God knows. This, this immense power of God, he can see into our minds. He knows what we're thinking, what we're feeling, what we're saying. But notice who God begins with when he confronts that disbelief goes to Abraham. And he asks Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? And this, this power of God, you know, she's acting like this is the first time she's heard this. It, it really, Abraham should have been helping his wife with this promise of God. He should have been there taking a lead and caring for her. But God in his grace, his patient mercy repeats his character and his promise. There's nothing that's too hard. The word is wonderful. There's nothing that's too wonderful for God. Like God thinks, oh, that would be really cool, but I just don't have the resources to do that. God, that's never happened for God. Now, if you'd just been caught by God in a sin of unbelief, you might become a little bit scared like Sarah does and try to deny it. 
I didn't laugh, right? That's what, that's what she says, and, and we do that with God. Well, I didn't, I didn't mean to do that. I, I didn't say, I didn't do that. God says, no, what you just said is a lie, Sarah. You did laugh. Now, what we're seeing is how fear clouds our thinking. How on earth could, could you be afraid of this God and, and think, well, he's powerful enough to hear my thoughts, but but I can convince him that he didn't actually hear what he thought he heard, <laughs> right? I mean, fear gets in our way, and it clouds our thoughts. It makes us think wrongly. It makes us act wrongly. You see it with Sarah, but you can see it in yourself as well. When you're afraid, when you, when you feel fear, that's not the time to make decisions. <laughs> that's not the time to make life-impacting, long-term decisions. Fear can be very helpful when there's a tiger running at you, Right? Fear, be afraid, run, you know, do something, do, do something to, to protect yourself. But, but other things that we fear that aren't immediate, that, that are more perceived than real, don't act on those fears. Don't, don't think over and over again on those fears because fears cause us to think and act wrongly. Act in faith instead, but confess and believe the power of God. That's what God's teaching here. There's nothing too hard for me. Oh, you're right. I'm, I'm still afraid. I'm afraid of this. I'm afraid of that. So I'm, I'm going to try to lie directly to God. No. Believe. Confess the fear. Confess the sin and believe. We, we believe in the power of God, right? We know that God is strong. He's almighty. So, so we believe in him or do we all the time? Let's think through this. We join, really, in Sarah's laughter at God and His Word a little more often than we think we do. If you've ever questioned whether God is present or cares, you know, God, where are you? What's going on? What are you doing in this? We're joining in Sarah's laughter at God's Word. He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. And, and, and I'm working through everything that you're going through for a purpose. We laugh at His Word. Could God really be there? Have you ever thought, what is God trying to teach me through this? That comes from a well-meaning place, right? We know that God's at work in, in every circumstance, and, and God's in control, and He's shaping me. But, but why this, right? Why this lesson? Why this lesson again? I mean, haven't I already learned this lesson? And what we're doing is we're laughing at God saying, you know, I've already arrived. I don't need you working on me more in this area or that area. Aren't we questioning His power, His all-seeing, His all-knowing, the purpose that He has? We're, we're questioning Him. We're laughing at what he says. When we shy away from sharing the gospel, oh, I can't share the gospel with that person. You know, I mean, God can't use me. When he demonstrated, he can use a donkey to speak his word, <laughs> right? He can use some, some pretty unreliable people in his word to speak his truth, to bring others to himself. You know, God can really use me, and God really can use you, and nobody else out there is too far gone for God to reach with his word. And so we laugh at all of his promises when we say, I, really, I can't share the gospel with that person. Because Ephesians 1.11 tells us that God works how many things according to the counsel of his will? All. All things. Romans 8 tells us that God works all things for good, not our definition of good, but His definition of good, when we're called according to His purpose, not our own. God, I want this. You've called me, so I'm going to get good. You know, you're going to give me good here, right? No, He says He works all things for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. 
when we turn to Jesus for salvation, he says, don't hold on to yourself with a stranglehold and get what you want and do what you want. He says, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. He does not say, keep a hold on yourself, wear a cross as a necklace and follow your dreams, right? So listen, even when, we, even when we go further, we take it a step further, when we turn to chemicals like pills or tobacco or alcohol or whatever it is, what we're saying to God is your power, your presence, God, is not enough, right? I need this substance to endure. I, I need this substance to get through. Or, or when we, t- we don't use chemicals, we use other tools like anxiety and worry. We're saying, God, I can't trust you. I've got to take hold of this and, and bring trouble into my own life instead of trusting you. I need to bring this suffering to to be troubled with events that I can't control. And and when we follow the world's advice to to believe in ourselves, to strengthen our view of ourselves, convince yourself that you're strong enough and you're capable and you can handle it and you can do it, that you're independent, we're laughing at God's word that says, no, you can't, but I can. And, And we're denying what he says. And this happens all the time. This happens through throughout the day in our minds and in our thoughts and our actions. It, this week, I, I, uh, my, my phone had some kind of notification. I started to pick it up. It slipped out of my hands and fell onto the ground. And, and what I said was, dang it, piece of junk. And part of my flesh says, now see, your, your streak continues. It's been a long time since you've cur- you said a curse word, right? Oh, you've kept it alive. You, you, but what I thought about instead was, why did I get so upset when something didn't go my way? Something as small as a phone dropping on the ground. Is it really a piece of junk because it fell <laughs> when, I, when it slipped out of my hands? Was it, was it really a problem that that happened? I mean, shouldn't I be grateful instead that God has made this world with gravity and it works reliably? It's, something, it's an orderly planet that God has ordered and made and everything works the way it's supposed to. Shouldn't I have been grateful instead of expecting God to like do some kind of miracle so that my phone would just levitate there when I drop it and I could just, oh, thank you, Lord, and I could just go back on with my day. No, God works in many times predictable ways in this world, doesn't he? God's power works in great, big, magnificent ways and God's work, work also happens and works always in teeny, tiny little ways as well. And, and we've talked about how God is sovereign over nations and kings but he's also sovereign over the atoms that make up blades of grass and the rock that just flew up and cracked your brand new windshield. (laughs) He's in control and he knows, he can see and hear even the things that are happening in our minds as things happen. And in all of it, he's working to make us look to him more than this world for comfort, for hope, for love, for faith, for understanding. We need to believe in the almighty power of God. And we need to be working on this all the time because the world and our flesh are constantly struggling to pull us away from believing in the mighty power of God. So praise God for his grace through all of this. He never gives up on us. Even Hebrews 11 says that despite all of this, Sarah had faith. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who promised. See, her faith was in God, not in herself to do what what she didn't think she could do. So we must be really believing in God's power. And by God's grace, we'll grow in that. There's a third trait. 
a third trait in verses 16 to 21. Number three, that God's people of faith keep his way. God teaches us that, that when we believe, we keep his way. And this is very practical for life. The three visitors have finished eating. So they set out, and Abraham, as this hospitable host, accompanies them for part of the way. And the Lord says he's going to reveal to Abraham what's about to happen. Why? Well, verse 18 says, because I made this covenant, you're going to bless all of the nations. And there's about to be one less nation on the planet, right? There's about to be one less. But two, because I have chosen him. Now, if you have New King James or King James, it says, because I have known him. But every other translation that I looked at says, chosen him. And it's better translated chosen. What is God's charge to Abraham, the reason that God chose him? Now, we're not forcing anything onto the text. It it just says God chose him, not because of Abraham or anything in him, but because now Abraham, as the chosen of God, is charged to do what? The responsibility to command or teach his children and his household to keep the way of the Lord. What is the way of the Lord in in these verses in the context? Doing righteousness and justice. And in doing that, God will bring what he has promised him. Now, that doesn't mean the covenant somehow suddenly becomes conditional. It's still a unilateral covenant. God says, I'm going to do this. He says, but now that I'm going to bring this to you when you obey doing my way, keeping my way of righteousness and justice, because we can get in God's way. We can mess things up for ourselves. We'll never be able to stop God's plan. We've established that, and we continue to see that through the Scriptures. But sometimes we can take ourselves out of His blessing, and we can get ourselves out of God's way. So simply, Abraham Abraham is called here to keep God's way and teach it, and His way is righteousness and justice. So what's righteousness? Well, it's doing right. It's objectively, morally, truthfully, in every way, all of the time, acting and doing what's right. That's God's way. That's supposed to be our way, and that should be what we're teaching the next generation. Now, we know we can't be perfect at that. We, we talked about how it was faith that God uses to account to us righteousness, to, to see us as righteous, but then he also begins to work that out practically in our lives. That's true of us. So, so we're keeping ourselves in God's way by, by his power, by his work in us. We're, we're keeping righteousness. And then justice is deciding justly and fairly. There's no favoritism for or prejudice against any person. It, it's all, uh, the scales are equal. It, they're balanced. The standard of measurement is fair and consistent. And what comes about through justice is righteousness. And so that is the way of God. Ezra 9.15, you have it in your notes. O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. You have Psalm 11.7 in your notes. The Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. God is just and he is righteous. And, and that's what God says about himself. It's going to be proven in the next section. when we don't see righteousness and justice happening in our life, when we don't see a care or a concern for it, then we should rightly question, God, am I walking in your way? God, is my faith placed rightly in you? Or have I gotten off track? When we're not teaching justice and righteousness, when we're not showing others what that looks like and we're not telling them that this is what righteousness is and this is what justice is and, and this is where it's found and, and how we can walk in, when we're not doing that, then we also should again be questioning, God, 
has my faith gotten off track? Have I ever really had faith in you? Because again, the God that you serve is the God that you'll start to look like. And this God is a God of justice and a God of righteousness. So much of the church has rejected God's word for children, how to care for children, how to, how to discipline children, how to, how to love them and, and bring them up in the ways of the Lord. So much of the church has rejected God's way for how to help people struggling with life. You know, just go out there and find help, and then when you get better, then you can come on back, and, and then we'll all just be smiling and happy all the time. <laughs> we need to understand that, that we're to be teaching, that we're to be using God's Word, His way, for His will, for His purpose to be brought about. Now, again, we said that this is what's said, this is what's spoken about God, that He's a God of justice and righteousness. That's His way. The rest of this paragraph and the next section are going to prove that to us. We're going to see that in God. And He goes to great lengths to demonstrate that because, like we said before, the three men weren't described on their appearance, how they dressed, but the, but the, the truth of who God is is important, and that's what's going to be described here. So in verse 20, the Lord said, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave. So again, against the standard of justice, people are not finding justice, and there's no righteousness, and they're crying out. Things aren't fair. Things aren't right. People People are sinning, and they're getting away with it, and people are getting hurt by sin. The culture is being ripped apart. Families are being destroyed. There's blood in the streets, and it's all crying out to God for justice. Sounds a little bit familiar in our culture. God has heard it. And against the standard of righteousness, God's holiness, their sin is very grave. And Lord willing, next week, we'll come face to face with it in in the next chapter and in some other parts of Scripture that that explain it to us. But something's got to be done. If if God is a God of justice, somebody's got to do something. Punishment must come. But God says in verse 21, I'm going to verify it first. Now, we know that God knows already, right? I mean, everybody knows that this is a wicked place. Abraham knows it. Lot knows it. I mean, you know, the people know it. Everybody knows it. But God is going to make the effort here to demonstrate that there was going to be nothing unfair with God. I'm not going to take hearsay. I'm I'm not going to take secondhand knowledge. There's not going to be anything unfair. God will make every person stand before him in their own merits, what they have done. And that's a scary place to be. Because we want Jesus' works and his righteousness in our place when we stand before God, but these people won't have that. So he says, I'm going to go see for myself. Again, he already knows, but he's making this effort to show us he's a God of justice. And and it's similar to the language that he used with the Tower of Babel. I'm going to go down and see for myself. And God doesn't say, you know, should I hide from Abraham that I'm going to just destroy all of them and wipe them off the face of the earth? No, he says, "I, I need to tell Abraham this is what I'm doing so that he knows, so that he can teach this, and he can teach this to the next generation so that Moses will have it, and he'll write it down, and we can have it, and we can understand. Now, since everybody knows the truth, and that sentence of destruction and death and punishment and judgment is coming, Abraham understands that. He's going to start pleading with God. So God's people of faith are known by these first three traits, hospitality, belief in his power, keeping his way. We will be known by those ways because he's our God, but there's a fourth, and this is so missing in so much of the church also. 
In number four, verses 22 to 33, we're going to see that God's people of faith intercede. Intercede. We see a lot of a different approach here. You know, God tells Abraham, uh, this is what's going to happen. Abraham knows that they're going to be destroyed. And instead of going, yes, finally, about time, those wicked people really deserve it. God, let them have it. (laughs) That's what so many people do when we learn about the end times. You know, God, yes, come on back and get them and fix all that stuff. But Abraham doesn't do that. Why would we look forward to God's judgment coming on people? You know, Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3 that we are to be living lives of holiness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. We should want the day of God. We should want Jesus to return. We should want that day to be here, but not so that we can watch people burn in judgment. That's not what he tells us to be looking for. He says that it is according to this promise that we are waiting for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's what Peter says. The same God of justice, the same God of righteousness, we should be wanting his justice and righteousness and all of his glory to be revealed. And yes, that's going to mean that many, many will be judged and many will suffer his punishment forever, but that's not the part that we're looking forward to. That will bring him glory, but the part that we're looking forward to is his glory on display in every way. Apocalyptic truth, you know, what's coming at the end should should not get us excited to think, well, they sure deserve that, because they do, but so do we. And it's only by God's grace that we're not going to get what we deserve. So Abraham prays instead. He intercedes for the people there. He intercedes for the righteous. We call this intercession. Prayer to God for somebody else is intercession. It's what it's interceding. And it's so important for Christians. Again, this is something that we're commanded. Ephesians 6, 18 says, after the imagery of the the full armor of God and putting it all on and standing firm and standing fast, he says, in every piece, in every way, put it on, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. He says, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Now, supplication is asking God for something, but when we're asking God for the saints, for other people, that's also called intercession. We're told to do this. That's a standard for all of us. Are you praying for the person that's sitting next to you, or or the person at the end of your row, or the person on the other side of the room? Are, Are you praying for these people? We can and we need to be interceding for others. Paul said in Romans 10:1, his heart's desire and prayer was for those in Israel to be saved. He was praying for salvation for other people. Jesus commands us, Matthew 5:44, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Now, for so be praying for those who are persecuting us, shouldn't we also be praying for those who aren't? Abraham pleads for God for the righteous in Sodom. Now, let's look at his intercession. We'll learn from these quickly um, the essential parts of intercession, how Abraham lifts up this intercession to God. The the first one that we see is in verses 23 and 25. Faith-filled intercession is based on who God is. It's based on who God is. Not who the other person is. You know, God, I pray for this person because they deserve for you to, whatever it is, right? God, I pray for this person because they're so important to me. They can be, they should be, they should be important to us, but that's not the basis. The the appeal that Abraham has here is not, 
um, that they're, the righteous people deserve this, but, but God, you're the righteous judge. You wouldn't do that, would you? You, you wouldn't wipe out the, the righteous with the unrighteous in the same way. And God agrees. No, I won't do that. I won't do that. For the sake of 50 righteous, I won't wipe out even all. Now, there could have been tens of thousands of people in the area. Out of tens of thousands of people, just 50 righteous. God says, no, I'll spare the whole thing for the sake of 50. Now, keep in mind this is explicit judgment for sin. This isn't just natural disaster that happens to both believers and unbelievers. We know that that happens. But when it's explicit judgment for sin, God says, no, I'm not going to do that with the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, that should give us hope, brothers and sisters, about the tribulation that's coming when God's wrath is poured out for sin on the world that believers are not going to have to be there. Because God says, no, I won't do that. I won't make believers, the righteous, suffer the same way that unrighteous people will. But, but the, the intercession here is not based on them or on Abraham. It, it's based on God. So when I'm interceding for somebody, my prayer might sound more like, God, I ask that you would work in this person's life mightily and powerfully as only you can as the El Shaddai, Almighty God. I ask God that you draw him to yourself in repentance and faith because you're the only savior of mankind. See how this is based on who God is and I'm praying, God, based on who you are. I ask that you would save this person so that you would be praised and glorified and exalted to take an unworthy sinner and turn him into a saint. It's a prayer that we can pray and intercede for other people based on who God is. It's not, you know, please save her because I I just don't know what I would do. That's not the basis, it's the basis of who God is. Lord God, I pray that you as the great physician, when we have people that are, that are sick and, and that are needy, we, we pray that you, the only perfect healer, would heal her body. God, use medicine, use doctors, use the treatments, or just heal her. We ask and we pray that you would be praised, and Father, if it's not your will, to heal. We pray that your name would still be praised and thanked and worshiped as the perfect Father. See, those are, those are ways that we can be praying and interceding for people based on the character of God. It's obvious that we care for people when we're praying for them and when we lift them up to our God who hears and who knows. Um, number two, intercession is a faith-filled intercession arises from our humility. In verse 27, Abraham says, I, I who am but dust and ashes. <laughs> I, I've asked God for something here, and it's for somebody else, but, but I, he never lost sight of the greatness of God, the power of God. I don't have any right to ask this, <laughs> not in myself, but I ask this because of who you are, God. It, it's recognized, it's spoken, not just implied. And, and you notice that every time Abraham asks, maybe, maybe 45, maybe 40, maybe 30, maybe 20, it, the tension rises because he knows he's, he's, he's asking this great God, but he is nothing before him. And yet we know that in Hebrews 4, we have access with boldness to this throne of grace. So we have humility in ourselves, but we have boldness to ask because of our God. And we know that we don't speak as an equal, but we intercede in our humility. Number three, faith-filled intercession is persistent. It's persistent, verses 28 to 32. Over and over and over again, Abraham asks. And, and he asks, and, and he continues to just to shrink it down, and, and God, please do this, and please do that. And, and, and God is so good to even get down to 10 out of tens of thousands of people. And you've got Luke 18, and you've got Luke 11 in your notes. Study those parables to find out that God wants us to be persistently asking, persistently asking God, 
God, I know that you hear and I know that you care, but I'm asking again and I'm asking again. I know that many of you persistently ask for your prodigal children, the members of your family, and we're praying along with you those same prayers week after week because God tells us that's what he wants us to do. And that's what Abraham models for us here. Number four, the last one. In verse 33, faith-filled intercession accepts both the answer and the result. Both the answer and the result. You say, what does that mean? Isn't that the same thing? In this case, it wasn't. God's answer to Abraham is, yes. Yes, I will spare. Yes, if that is, if that is true, I will spare. But then we know, before we, even, before we even start studying next week, we know that the answer, the result becomes, no, I will not spare. His answer was, yes, I will spare if this is true, but it's not. And then the result becomes not what Abraham wanted. And so in our prayers as we're interceding, all the praise still goes to God. And the way that he answers the prayer is uniquely powerful. It's uniquely good. And it's all for his praise. We may not get the result that we hope for, but God's working his will through it. Now the time to stop praying incessantly, as we know, is when he gives us an answer, even when that answer is no, like when Paul had in 2 Corinthians 12, right? I had this thorn in the flesh and I prayed, God, please remove it, please remove it, please remove it. God said no, and then he stopped praying (laughs) about that. He stopped praying about that, but he kept praying for other people. God will always do what is righteous and just. So our application, seek faithful growth in these four traits. Seek faithful growth in these four traits. Now, As we said, don't just start on the outside, the symptoms, and start trying to work that way. You might be able to fool some people for a time, but you'll never be able to fool God. He knows what's happening in your mind, in your heart. He knows if it's real. So begin in the heart, but then the practical outworking of this is these four traits as a beginning. And there's much more, but he will bring it all to pass. He will make it all true in our lives as we seek him and as we grow in him. Father, we thank you that that is true, that you are so powerful. God, you're so much bigger than we can even imagine. And yet in your greatness, Lord, in your transcendence, Lord, you still condescend to us. Lord, you come down to our level and you, you, you speak to us, Father. You know how many hairs are on our head. God, you know when sparrows fall. Father, you've told us that we are more important to you than those sparrows. God, I pray that we would take your promises at their, at their face value. Lord, that they, that they would be real and true to us. Father, that we'd live those out, that we would increase in this faith because you, you are the faithful one. You are the powerful one. You're the good one. Lord, there's so much about you. I pray that we would study, that we would learn, that we'd grow. God, that you would change us because of that. Lord, that we'd not just get smarter, Lord, but that we'd grow in holiness and love and that the name of Jesus would be exalted and, and, and praised. Thank you for him, our Savior. We pray this all in his name and for his great glory. Amen.